So I found out about this pretty cool professor named Hirsch Sheffrin at Santa Clara, and I knew he'd been around for a while and had done some cool work. So I sent him a sent him an email asking if he would be willing to meet up and record a conversation. He replied, "Sure." I'm just about to leave for this meeting where my friend and co-author Richard Thaler will be honored for his 2017 Nobel Prize in economics. Could you send me an email again in the middle of next week so we could set up a time? And I replied, sure, Professor Sheffern, I'd be happy to send you an email next week. See ya. Uh, so I did send him an email the next week and we set up a time and got to chat and it was pretty amazing. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hersheffrin is a pioneer in the field of behavioral finance, which, as the name suggests, integrates principles of human behavior, like emotion and self-control, into financial and economic models. Professor Sheffern has written several books, including Behavioral Risk Management in 2015, about how financial disasters and mistakes almost always have behavioral roots. He has written textbooks, dozens of articles, he contributes to Forbes, and he has his own Wikipedia page. In this conversation, Dr. Sheffern tells the story of how he got interested in behavioral economics, and this story involves the most famous psychologists of the 20th century. Finally, Dr. Sheffern gives his investing advice and shares how young people can build a future of wealth with confidence and not be swayed by short-term fluctuations or news. We also zoom in on personal decision-making tactics, and how to think about self-control. I had a lot of fun with this conversation, as you can probably guess, with my economics nerdiness, and I think you'll enjoy it a lot and learn some tactics, too, that you can use to make better decisions yourself. So please enjoy this conversation with Santa Clara veteran and behavioral finance pioneer Hirsch Sheffrin. To start out, um, we'll get into some of your work, but I'm kind of interested to know how you first got interested in behavioral economics, and um, you seem to have had a pretty like international academic career, at least in a couple different countries. So, kind of how did how how did your career start out, and why behavioral finance? I'll start by by saying that um, as as an undergraduate. I was interested in physics, mathematics, and economics. And uh, I went through all three programs, uh, but I kind of switched from physics to economics in midstream. And then I, I ended up going to graduate school first in mathematics and then in economics. I was really lucky. Um, I uh, worked with just incredible people. Um, I don't know if you saw The Imitation Game, the film. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so, it, so it turns out that the, the real hero of that story um, was not... Alan Turing played an important part in the war effort, but the really important code got broken, not by Alan Turing, but my, by my professor. Um, and that was a secret, wow. and that was a secret until about four years ago. 
when a Freedom of Information Act request uncovered that. And he was a mathematician, just like Alan Turing. So um, I, went, I went to the London School of Economics uh, to do my PhD uh, as a mathematical economist. That's what I wanted to be. And mathematical economists really like to build models, mathematical models of the way that economies function. And that really attracted me. And just like most people who come out of physics and go into economics, and there are a lot of us, it's very compelling and fascinating to think about how you can build models that capture not what's happening in the physical world, but what's actually happening in the social world, in the human world. And so uh, I learned uh, how to do that as part of my program. But in the course of doing it, I, I just came to realize that the models, they really missed a lot of the human dimension. They, they missed what makes us people. And, and the most important thing that seemed to be missing pertained to emotions and mistakes. So what, what you do as a mathematician when you apply the same principles that physicists use is you use optimizing techniques and optimizing equations. And the assumption was that people know how to optimize. And it just, by virtue of looking at the world around me, I, I could see that really didn't capture the way I thought that, that most people functioned. And it wasn't even a good first order approximation. So uh, I, for my PhD dissertation, uh, I worked on nibbling around the edges of that issue by focusing on what happened when prices didn't always clear markets because people weren't smart enough to always set the right price. Mistakes about price setting. Uh, and then when I became a professor myself, uh, I was looking to expand that idea. And I was incredibly lucky because I wound up in, the, in a, a university where another junior faculty member, which is what we call assistant professor, junior faculty member, was interested in the same set of issues. And he had, he was further along than me. He had really made contact with psychologists who studied issues about human frailties, about the way that people make mistakes. Cognitive errors is the, is the phrase that we use. Uh, and we started to talk about issues of mutual interest. So I'll just say on my side, I had been interested in studying why Americans in particular, or women, American women in particular, are so focused on dieting behavior and why it's so difficult to come up with the right diet and follow the right diet. And why it is that people um, sometimes get themselves into trouble because they develop eating disorders uh, that's related to dieting. And my wife, uh, who was an academic at the time, was interested in that issue. And so she was reading the medical literature and I was reading you know, some of that literature myself just because I was interested in the, in the question. My, uh, my, my colleague, um, was uh, interested in dieting behavior also. And uh, his name is Richard Thaler. Uh, he uh, had 
come to the same question, but not because he was reading the medical literature, but because he had had a, a party when he was a graduate student for other graduate students. And they had found that while they were waiting for dinner, they couldn't stop eating the nuts that were placed in front of them as an appetizer and eventually asked that the nuts be removed from the table so that they didn't overeat the nuts. And for him, as an economist, that seemed odd because economists at that time assumed you just make the rational decision. If eating too many nuts is not rational, you don't eat them. You don't need the nuts to be removed from the table. So he and I um, began to have conversations about what we might be able to do to formally bring these ideas about human imperfections, emotions, and absence of self-control, difficulties of dealing with self-control challenges, into economics per se. And so the two of us began to work together. What especially interested me was the question of how do you build coherent, consistent models about self-control? So I'm a theorist, a mathematical economist. That was really appealing to me. But I didn't want to just build models for the sake of building models because the models were interesting in and of themselves. I really wanted to build models that captured important parts about, about, about human personality and human character. So that was the genesis of how I became formally involved. And at that time, I have to say, I don't believe anybody was calling themselves behaviorally economists. I think I think that we began to call ourselves behavioral economists. Um, it's certainly the case we weren't the first behavioral economists. When we read the classics, John Maynard Keynes definitely fell into the camp of what we would today call a behavioral economist. Adam Smith, who's regarded as the father of modern economics, in, in the 1750s, 60s, and 1770s was already talking about ideas that today we would call behavioral economics. And so there was a rich tradition in existence, but it had fallen out of popularity. And so really what we were in the act of doing was bringing back those kinds of insights into modern economics. Um, now, the greatest stroke of good luck for me was that, uh, was that Dick Thaler had already made contact with the two psychologists who today are thought of probably as the most important psychologists of the second half of the 20th century, if not the entire century, and that was Kahneman and Tversky. So Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Uh, Dick this um, I was a junior faculty member before I came to Santa Clara at the University of Rochester. Dick and I were at the University of Rochester together. Uh, Dick came out to Stanford to do a sabbatical the year that Kahneman and Tversky were doing their sabbatical at Stanford. And I came up for part of that year to, to join them. So um, that was my initial introduction, personally. I'd already been reading reading their work and thinking about how that work applied to economics. But that was that was that was my uh, um, uh, first uh, personal uh, introduction to uh, to those two uh, uh, brilliant psychologists. And so uh, it makes a difference because, you know, um, it's one thing to read somebody's work, but sitting down and talking about it in person, that was a real mentoring experience for me. 
and and I think that it sort of provided me uh, with a, a framework that uh, allowed me to have a really strong foundation upon which to build models that again would would bring these kinds of ideas into in, in, into economics per se, and then later into finance. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. What was it like to work with all those people? Like, what did you learn from them, or how did you grow? Uh, I think I learned how to think like a cognitive psychologist. I knew I was trained to think like an economist. I had a, a sense that there were ways that one should be could be thinking differently or should be thinking differently. Um, and what I learned from them initially was that they had a mindset for how to approach the question of what differentiates theoretical behavior from the way that people actually behave. How do you, how do you think systematically? What, what questions should your mind be asking? What should you be looking for? Um, so I'll, I'll tell you something that really did was a big surprise for me. I thought that the real innovations that psychologists brought to the table had to do with the fact that emotion was important. And so in, in, in the work that Dick and I did on self-control, I always emphasized that self-control involved a conflict between the way we think and the way we feel, the way we, what we think we should be doing and what our emotions tell us we, we ought to be doing. And that the conflict was that what we thought was different from what we felt we should do. When Dick and I first presented our joint work to Kahneman Tversky, the biggest surprise for me was that Tversky in particular, Amos, he did not appreciate um, the, our focus on emotion. And because I was a big believer at that time that emotion was sort of a critical issue, that just caught me completely off guard. And so what I didn't understand was that in the same way that economists were divided about whether the world should be best described as everybody being rational or whether we should relax the rationality assumption, that psychologists themselves were also fragmented on the role of emotion. There were different schools of thought in psychology and that uh, Kahneman and Tversky, particularly Tversky, uh, were focused only on cognition and they thought emotions were at best a minor sideshow. So that was a big surprise for me. That was a big surprise for me. Um, and I have to say, I never gave up on the idea emotions were important, even though they thought, <laughs> even though they thought that they weren't. Although I did shift the emphasis uh, so that I emotions got downplayed for for a time relative to to, to cognitive uh, issues. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So, on a more practical level, for someone trying to make a decision. Um, Let's say that I'm I'm a student weighing a few different options for how to spend my summer. I could do an unpaid internship in my hometown that's more in line with my career. I could take a job at a Starbucks to make some money, or I could go abroad to work with a social enterprise. So what what types of 
things should I be thinking about and making a decision about, for, for example, like how to spend a summer? So um, there are two ways to think about the issue. So the first is, do you have a sense of what the trade-offs are? Do you really understand what all the trade-offs are? So if you were a completely rational decision maker, you would be able to sit down and write down a list of all the pros and cons associated with each one of those decisions and then ascertain which are the most important of the various issues associated with each potential decision. And in your heart, you would know which was the right, you'd be able to easily determine what was the right decision for you. So that would be if the, if the, if the rational Gavin was in charge. But suppose it's the case that alongside that rational decision maker, there are other issues that sort of weigh on your mind uh, that have to do with mm, whether you would miss your friends, um, that have to do with your an interest in having a little bit more money so that uh, you could um, just have a bit more fun than you would otherwise. And that you know that really two years from now, three years from now, five years from now, from the rest of your life, it's the abroad experience that's really going to make you as a person. But somehow the immediacy of wanting now just in your mind is is taking on a whole set a degree of, you're attaching a degree of importance to it that that you know later in life you would say I shouldn't have done it but you but it's hard for you so and then the question is whether you've got a self control problem to deal with because the temptations are too strong for the for immediate gratification. So that's one thing to think about. Um, a second thing is to think about whether you're starry-eyed. Uh, it might be that the internship abroad that you think of as being absolutely wonderful uh, is not the right experience for you uh, because you have um, an idea that it's going to be absolutely fabulous when if you were to speak to somebody who actually went through it, you learn that it's just not cracked up it's not everything that's cracked up to be because you haven't done enough research to make certain that you have enough information to judge that it will do for you what you think it will do for you. So will you succumb to what's called confirmation bias and just assume it's all going to work out? Or will you ask yourself, hmm, am I overlooking any potential negative information? about this internship that I will will reg might regret in the future, I didn't do enough research. So those are the kinds of, of, of cognitive errors that might be potentially important to you that if you don't think about them, then you're, you become more vulnerable. Yeah, self-control has come up a couple times and I feel like a lot of people, a lot of times wish they had more self-control. So what do you think of, about self-control and is is that the right question to be asking i guess about how to improve self-control it is it's a it's a, it's a very it's a very important question um 
And the, so, the, so there are two questions. One is, am I vulnerable to not handling self-controlled challenges as effectively as I might? Uh, that could that can involve all kinds of things. For example, it could involve um, drinking too much on the weekends. Uh, it could involve not studying hard enough. Uh, all you know, all kinds of issues where you find it difficult to de delay gratification. The second thing is, what can you do about it if you think that you have a self-control challenge? And facing up to it squarely is the is is like step one of a twelve step program. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what the psychology literature suggests is that developing good habits is critical. But if you have to rely on willpower to um, manage a self control issue, you need to be able to distract yourself so that the source of the temptation isn't what's screaming into your brain, but instead something else will replace that screaming so that you focus attention on something else besides this very urgent need that your brain seems to recognize that you know deep in your heart is not good for you. Hmm. Yeah, I'd love to touch on investing a little bit too. So if you imagine a college student or a young person in there, 20s and 30s, uh, they have some money, they know they want to invest for the future, but they they read the news every day and they think, oh, I don't know, I think we're going into a recession. I think this would be a bad time to invest. I might as well just just kind of wait until until later. So what are a few tips you have for young people to effectively invest? Understand why you want to invest. Understand whether you want to get rich quick or understand whether you want to build a nest egg for the future. If you want to build a nest egg for the future, ignore everything about what's happening now and simply start to put money away in a sensible place, in an asset class that's likely to generate high quality returns over time, despite volatility. If you're well diversified and you're in an asset class like equities that historically have done well, don't worry what's going to happen over the next year, two years, three years. Most of the time, if we look, if we look at investors, if they're five years out or 10 years out, it's unlikely that you'll be behind by starting now. But if you're worried that you're gonna feel stupid, which is which, which, which is the emotion you really have to be concerned about. You know, so I put money in and all of a sudden we go into a bear market and we're 20% down. You know, you put in $10,000, it's worth 8,000. You've lost $2,000 in the last two months. You feel like an idiot. Well, that emotion is very strong and you kind of just have to have a conversation with yourself about what good long-term investing means. And it means being willing to risk not just losing money, but feeling like an idiot in the short term. Because the odds are in the long term, you won't look like an idiot. You'll look really smart, but you may have to wait a while for that to happen if you just happen to invest at the wrong time. 
Um, now, on the other hand, if your objective is to get rich quick and look really smart, whatever money that you use to do that, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. Just understand it's kind of like buying a lottery ticket and some of us do win the lottery. So you might wind up looking smart, but that money is money you can afford to lose. You have to think about it that way. It's play money. It's like money that you're probably going to spend on something fancy and fun. But once you've spent it, it's not going to be returned to you. You can actually have spent the money. So you're going to be buying the experience. And if you're lucky, you'll actually might wind up making a pile. Mm -hmm. But it'll happen mostly because you're lucky, not because you're smart. But but if, if that's what's going to give you pleasure, just understand what you're doing and be honest with yourself. Hmm. I feel like among college students, especially in, in our modern times, there's kind of this sense of uncertainty and maybe even uneasiness. People don't know, you know, where they're going to work in the future. They're not sure, you know, is the economy going to be good? Am I going to find opportunities? So can we learn anything from behavioral economics about just how to like manage our emotions in in difficult times or how to how to think about the future and not overreact when we're just reading the news it's hard not to overreact because we simply have this barrage of very strong emotion-laden language coming at us and it's intended that way that's the way the media makes um, uh, makes money. They, they attract your attention, they keep your attention so that for, for the most part, advertising dollars can be applied so that once they have your attention, you can be the receiver of messages from, from, from people who've bought ad advertising time. So to attract your attention, they need to make everything sound dramatic. I would say two things. First is, if you want to invest for the long term, Get used to investing a little bit of money now, but get into the habit of investing. And then that money needs to be off limits. Don't raid that account. Build it up slowly over time because you have all these other things to, to worry about. But habit formation is, is the most important tool you've got to deal with potential self-control associated with excess fear, excess fight or flight reactions, for example. And then if you're in a situation where you have to calm down because there's so much happening and all the messages from uh, the way the news is being reported is just getting you to be fearful, well, just make certain that you don't, you, you've set things up so you, so you have to think twice before you do something stupid rather than impulsive. The big worry is that you'll do something impulsive. So one of the biggest mistakes that investors make once they have invested in the past and have accumulated a little bit of a, of a nice portfolio position is they panic and they sell. And, they, and it might be that the market goes down after they sell, but they don't get back in time because they're so scared. So during the headlights, they sit there, they watch the market go down a bit, then they watch it come back up, but they don't get back in in time because they're still frightened. And by that time, the market then moves beyond where they, where they sold. And so now they're worse off. And now they're feeling, well, now they made a mistake by not getting back in. So now they're going to feel that they should wait until it comes back down again so they can be back in. But it never happens. And all of a sudden, they find that the markets move way ahead of them. And who would have thought 
you know, they'll say to themselves that the market moved that quickly. Markets are really hard to predict. So don't try to predict them. Just try to invest a bit like a robot, sensibly, with discipline and good habits. And what you'll find is over the long term, you'll look brilliant. You'll look brilliant. But don't do something where you'll wind up outsmarting yourself. Once in a while, you'll make the right call. But making the right call all the time is really hard. And it only takes one mistake to really inflict great harm on your portfolio positions. And that's why discipline is really important for long-term investing. On the other hand, if what you're really doing is set, you know, some, having some play money in order to sort of, I mean, it's almost like sports betting, you know, where what you're really doing is you're not trying to make money so much as to play a, a game of trying to outguess somebody else. Um, that's a different matter. That's like consumption. And that's the way you ought to be thinking about it. That, that's not serious investing. Serious investing is not trying to beat the market. Serious investing is managing your portfolio as if you can't beat the market, but you can exploit what opportunities the market gives you to build up your wealth over time. Okay. But beating the markets was more, is more like a game, a video game almost. If you could give your college age self a piece of advice, what would you want to tell yourself? When I, <laughs> so when I was in college, well, I'll start with high school, actually. I had really bad study habits and I got away with it. I was smart enough to get away with it. And my friends who were more disciplined than me, they used to make fun of me because I would sort of answer questions on the fly as if I had done all the homework assignments. And uh, when I got to college, I sort of, the stakes were higher, the challenges were greater, and it was harder to do it, although I sort of did struggle to do it. But I, I didn't develop really good disciplined habits until I got to graduate school. Uh, or maybe, the, maybe halfway through my junior year. I, that was probably when I sort of started to, to really think I needed to do something differently. Um, and that was a self-control issue. I just didn't have the self-control to sit down <clears throat> and, and develop really good study habits and stay disciplined, set timetables, make certain I had all my assignments due on time when they were due, and had digested the important learning lessons for those assignments. That just took me, that just took me a, a while to do. You know, the best advice I would give myself is see what you can do to gain those insights earlier than than you did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'd love to wrap up with a couple of shorter questions. Okay. So, but so, that doesn't mean my answers will be short. No, it doesn't, they don't have to be. So first off, do you have any favorite or memorable place that you've traveled? The hard part is embarrassment of riches. I'd probably say... Israel, China, India, Thailand, Switzerland, Russia. Um, yeah, it's it's really hard. It's really hard to, to 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 pick pick the ones. When I was a graduate student, my my wife and I went to Russia when it was still the Soviet Union, and that was an incredibly exotic experience. Russia today is very different from when it was when the Soviet Union was was in existence. And so 
that was a that was a terrific experience. Um, uh, going to graduate school in England was was great because we got a Volkswagen van, and so we did a lot of camping. We went camping in Ireland. We went camping on the on the on the continent, and that was uh, just a, ter a a terrific adventure. But it's really hard hard to pick a place. We we were we've been really lucky to be able to have spent time over the course of our lives visiting many many exotic places and having and having great experiences hmm. nice are there any books that you've read recently that you've really enjoyed or often recommends to other people that doesn't have to be about behavioral finance but it could be i've been reading um robert sapolsky's work because he's both a neurologist and a primatologist to really try and understand what makes humans different from, from other species, but especially from apes with whom we share so much DNA. And, and in what sense uh, humans are a bit arrogant by thinking that we're so much better, more advanced than other than other species, and of course we are in many many ways, but not in all the ways we think we are. So Robert's policies were been been really um, uh, sort of in, insightful for me to think about that. Uh, I've been thinking. Uh, I, I like to read Richard Dawkins' work. I've gone I've gone back to look at the Selfish Gene, which is a book that I looked at decades ago, but I'm only beginning to appreciate now. Um, and you know, really thinking about about what what he's trying to to tell us um, about the what what our what our drivers are, um, our genetic drivers. Um, I would say that uh, I like to I like to think about religious texts and Richard Dawkins' view on the selfish gene together, partly because religious texts have this genetic um, strain, um, these genetic themes in it, when you sort of talk about whose seed will be perpetuated for thousands of generations into the future. And that's sort of picking up on Dawkins saying that, that you know, our, our, we're really vehicles for our, for our genes in order to, to um, uh, uh, perpetuate themselves into the future. Uh, so you know that's a, that's another you know set of ideas that have have, um, have been interesting to me. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you one more. Uh, Climate and the hockey stick is uh, I don't I, do you know this book at all? Um, no. Okay. So there's a, an author named Michael Mann who's a climatologist, and uh, he is a terrific scientist, but he's also a good writer, and he's been dragged into the politics of climate change. Uh, I found his work to be uh, especially interesting. Um, I'm really increasing the amount of time I spend now trying to understand climate change, global warming, and the role that economics, and especially behavioral economics, can or might play in, in, in the dynamics associated with climate change. Because if there's one thing that's clear to me is that collectively, Global warming is presenting us with the biggest self-control problem that the human race has ever faced. 
and we're not doing a very good job at facing up to that self-control challenge. So um, we are addicted to greenhouse gases. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and so the challenge is, you know, what we can do collectively in order to, to address the huge threat that faces us from global warming. I find that uh, works like his um, are especially insightful for me. Mm-hmm. And I recommend them to others. Yeah. If you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? Follow the golden rule and uh, keep future generations who have no voice in mind, uh, who have no voice at the moment in mind uh, as you as you follow that golden rule. Mm And finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? It's a day of rest. So, so I'm Jewish, and uh, Saturdays are Shabbat for me, which is the Sabbath. Um, so, I really ex- exploiting the uh, the full potential of that day to be both reflective and to recharge. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this interview. Pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can go to VoicesOfSantaClara.com to read a partial transcript of this episode, follow on Twitter at VoicesOfSCU, or leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. I'll see you next time.